All right. Hey, uh, before we uh, before we dive into our study tonight, um, I wanted to share with you that one of the things that we attempt to do here at the Oasis, and we we want to be an example to you all as as leaders of, of this church, is that when we feel impressed by the Spirit of God and led by the Spirit to to make a change or, or have a change that we want to obviously follow that. Um, and so uh, this Sunday, uh, we're going to suspend for one week our series in First Thessalonians. And uh, we're going to we're going to share a, uh, a message that, that I hope will be a great encouragement to everyone in the body. Um, lately, as, as the pastor, I have just felt that so many of our folks here at the Oasis right now are, are carrying a lot of weight on your shoulders for different reasons. Uh, I'm hearing from just different people things like, Pastor, I feel overwhelmed. Uh, Pastor, I'm struggling. Pastor, I'm going through the fire. Pastor, I'm going through a real trial right now. Uh, Just so many different things are happening to so many different ones. And even as the pastor, I was praying and I was crying out to the Lord the other day as, as I really believe, you know, as a church, God is leading us further down the road and we're getting ready to go up to a another level as a church, and yet I just felt like the winds are against us. And it was like, as soon as I said that, it was like God directed me to that passage of Scripture in Acts where that's exactly what Paul said when he was trying to get to Rome. He said, the winds are against us. And so we're going to be in Acts 27 on Sunday. And we're going to look at that passage, and, and, and I'm just praying and hoping that, that many people will be there on Sunday, because I think God wants to encourage us at this time, and, and He has moved me, He has led me to just say, stop what you're doing for a Sunday, and let's, let's come together as God's people, and let's, let's stand in the storms with each other. And let's pray for one another and pray over one another. And we're going to even do that tonight, but we're going to do that on Sunday, like we've done a couple times where at the end of the service, for those that just want some brothers and sisters to gather around them and to pray over them for some reason, we're going to take time to do that on Sunday. And I just hope that by me sharing that with you, you know what Sunday's going to be about, so you'll even begin to prepare your heart and, and to know coming in even to Sunday what Sunday's going to be about. It, it's going to be about looking at how God encourages us, as he did Paul and his companions as they were on that ship headed to it, Italy, even though the winds were against, against them. Tonight, I shared with you also on Sunday that I believe that God wanted to encourage us by looking at just two verses tonight. And yet they have so much encouragement in them. They are 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where John the Apostle writes, My little children, 
I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And He Himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. First of all, I want to start with that term that John uses there in chapter 2, verse 1, my little children. It is a term of endearment. It is a term that means to those that he's writing to, you are deeply loved. You are valued. You are precious. You are priceless. That term also carries with it this. That by using that term, John is in a sense manifesting the fact from his perspective that these are people that he feels spiritually responsible for. That's why he terms them little children. John is taking responsibility, some responsibility, for these folks' spiritual well-being and welfare by calling them my little children. And I thought to myself, how even in those terms that should speak to us, that, that our brothers and sisters should be dear to us, beloved, prized, valued, precious to us. And that if we are truly living out the purposes of God and we are making disciples as Jesus commands us to do as His children, and that's all of our responsibility, then we will always have somebody in our life that we feel spiritually responsible for. It's one of those things that gives us as Christians an ongoing, continual purpose in our life. When, when I hear Christians say, I don't know what my purpose is, I just sort of scratch my head and go, well, if we just do what the Bible tells us to do, we'll always have a purpose. Because our purpose is always to have somebody in our life that we are spiritually responsible for. That we are pouring ourselves into. Now, as a parent, it might be our children. It might be as simple, if you will, as that. Though that's not simple. But, but it's certainly not easy. But there should always be people that we are mentoring, we are discipling. It's one of the things that, you know, again, we're trying to, to implement in our women's ministry, in our men's ministry, and really throughout the whole church. It's what it's all about. And you think about it, every day when, when we wake up, if we felt spiritually responsible for others, even one other person, would that not change the way we approach the day and even the way we approach our own Christian life? We would want to make sure that we're where we need to be because others are counting on us. Others are looking to us as an example. Uh, others are counting on us to, to share the Scriptures with them and to build them up and to nurture them in the faith. And that's where John's coming from here when he says, My little children. And the reason he's writing, obviously, these things to to them as their spiritual mentor, as one who is discipling them from a distance at least at this point, is because he wants to inform them and instruct them about things. Things that he's already talked about that are so key to our relationship with God. That the essence of really this whole 
you know, relationship with God boils down to more than just a relationship. It's about fellowship he's talked to us about in chapter 1. And that we need to have fellowship with God because that's the only way we can enjoy the abundant, highest quality of life that Jesus came to give us. And it is out of that highest quality of life, John says in verse 4 of chapter 1, that we will truly be filled with his joy. Now, the only way we can maintain fellowship, John goes on to say in verses 5 through 9, is by walking in the light of God and being exposed and letting God's light light us up and show up what's there and maybe what's not there that should be there. And being willing to walk in that light so that God can shine on us, so that we can then turn to God and let God take care of the things that shouldn't be there and purge them out of our life. And, and the things that should be there, God can add to our life. That's why John says that Jesus Christ is one who can forgive us and cleanse us of all of our sin, of every kind of moral failure. And therefore, we should just be willing to confess our sins, to agree with God of our shortcomings and our failures and our sin... And live in the light of God. And to trust in His forgiveness. So now John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Notice the standard. In in a world today where we keep, as they say, dumbing things down, lowering the standard of everything to be able to include more and more people so that no one feels left out. God and His Word and those who follow Him never buy into that worldly philosophy. God says, I am calling you not to sin. Why? Because now through our relationship with Jesus Christ and through especially our fellowship with Jesus Christ, We have been given the enablement and the capacity to say no to sin that we didn't have before we had Jesus Christ, you see. So when you and I as children of God sin, it's not because we have to. It's because we choose to. We choose to walk in the flesh rather than to walk in the power of the Spirit. And God says, I don't want you to Walk in sin. I I don't want you to be in a state of sin. Let me talk about sin for a moment. Sin can be defined as anything that does not originate or is empowered by God. Let me repeat that. Sin is anything that does not originate with God. He's not the source. Or is empowered by God. It's why Paul says in uh, Romans 14, I believe verse 25, whatever is not of faith is sin. And the other thing about sin is this. The reason why God obviously doesn't want to see His children sin is because any time that you and I sin, we experience some kind of loss. We, we forfeit something. We give up something when we sin. We miss out on God's best and the highest quality of life when we sin. And therefore, John is saying, 
I'm, I'm urging you to walk in the light of God and to fellowship with God because it's only as you walk in a close connection with God that we will have the power in our life, pulsating through our life as Christians, to be able to say no to sin. God wants His children to live in victory rather than defeat. He wants us to, to live as overcomers. He doesn't want us to live in despair and discouragement because things have got such a, a, a hold on us that we feel like we can't overcome them. No, no. As a child of, of God, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I have within me, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the ability to say no to sin and yes to God. In fact, keep your finger there in 1 John chapter 2 and go back with me for just a moment to the book of Romans tonight, to chapter 6 of the book of Romans. Notice Paul addresses this subject and I'm going to begin reading in verse 11 of Romans chapter 6. He says the same thing. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, as believers, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. Do not present your members to sin as instruments to be used for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members to God as instruments to be used for righteousness. For sin will have no mastery over you because you're not under the law, but under grace. Then go back to verse 6 of chapter 6. We know that our old man was crucified with him so that the body of sin would no longer dominate us so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For someone who has died has been freed from sin. Are you free tonight? God wants His children to be free, you see. He, he does not want sin to, to get a hold on us. And that's exactly what John is saying. I'm writing these things to you. Those that I feel spiritually responsible for calling you not to sin. Rely on the power of God within you through the Holy Spirit. Realize what you have in you. Don't let sin dominate you. Don't let it get a hold of you. Realize that you can have victory over anything, anything in Jesus Christ. You see, and this is where John is going. John keeps the standard where it is. But then notice back in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, what John says next, though. Then he says, but if anyone does sin, and John understands, we don't live in a state of sin as a Christian, we should never let sin dominate us and, and get victory over it. We shouldn't live in defeat. We don't have to live there. But John says, if we, if we fail, if we sin, I want to give you some good news, John says. That's not the end, just if we sin. John goes on to say, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Now, the word have is important here. 
It means to always possess, to always hold, to always carry. In other words, it's, it's we always. It's not sometimes have an advocate. The word have speaks of a, of a permanent condition for us as followers of Jesus Christ. We always have an advocate. This word advocate that he uses to refer here to Jesus Christ is used five times in the New Testament. The other four times, Jesus actually uses it in the Gospel of John to refer to the Holy Spirit. The Greek word here is parakletos. It it means one who is close beside, one who is near, one who is standing by us. And it goes further on to be defined as one who is standing near, standing by us, to help and support us. And notice the context of when this is taking place. John isn't telling his, his you know, spiritual children here that Jesus Christ stands by you when you're doing well. No, John says, here's the good news. We don't have to sin. And I'm writing to you so that you will realize the resources that you have in fellowship with God so that you will not sin and you will live in victory rather than defeat. But if you sin, know this, God doesn't walk away from you. God stands by us even at our worst. Even when we sin, Jesus Christ stands there, you see. That's what John wants them to realize. Because even though, like Adam and Eve, when we sin, our tendency is to run, to hide, to withdraw, and to get away from God, John again is reinforcing the fact that God is the only one who can help. God is the only one who can help. So therefore, instead of running from God, realize that God is right there, even at our worst moments in life, and He is standing there. He doesn't cut and run. And He is standing there to help and support us as our advocate. And so John is also saying this. If, using you know the argument, if you will, from the greater to the less, If Jesus Christ stands by us as our advocate when we sin, when we are at our worst, then does it even just logically, you know, come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ stands with us every other time too? That that there is no time where Jesus Christ does not stand by us to help and support us? Maybe because of our sin and us walking away or hiding from God, we may feel like God is a million miles away, but John is giving us good news here. John says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We always possess him as our advocate. He never stops being our advocate. And John says, He's our advocate with the Father. Now, some have looked at this as if God the Father, when we sin, has a problem with us. 
He's not our advocate. And somehow they get this picture that Jesus Christ has to sort of like plead with the Father to be merciful to us. I don't personally share that interpretation. I think that what John is simply saying is that Jesus Christ is an advocate along with the Father. And then obviously what Jesus teaches about the Spirit in John 14, 15, and 16 is the Holy Spirit's our advocate too. The whole Trinity is our advocate. Because folks, if God is one, yes, God exists in three distinct persons, but God is one in His nature. So therefore, the Bible teaches that God is consistent with Himself. Therefore, if Jesus Christ is something, that means the Father is the same, and so is the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit aren't going to be our advocate, and somehow the Father not be. That would mean that they're not one. So don't look at this as if somehow, you know, you get this idea and, and you hear people say, oh, we've got we've to plead, you know, for that, that God be merciful and we've got to plead the blood of Jesus. There's nothing in the Bible about that. The Bible states the fact that Jesus Christ is and always is our advocate. He's always there to help and support. He's always going to stand by us, even at our worst moment. And so does the Father, and so does the Holy Spirit. In fact, I want to show you a passage of Scripture that speaks about God standing with us. Keep your finger there and turn to 2 Timothy for a moment. I want to show you this passage from the Apostle Paul and his experience. Because it just reminded me of what exactly God does with us. And we just need to remember this good news that the Bible teaches. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 16, where Paul declares, at my first defense, no one appeared in my support. Instead, they all deserted me, human beings. May they not be held accountable for it. But notice the contrast in verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. That's an advocate. That's the the office, if you will, of the parakletos. The one who is always there standing by us to strengthen us, to help us, to support us. And you can imagine how it grieves the God who is an advocate to be standing there wanting to help, desiring to help, and yet we don't ask for his help. We don't reach out to him. We still try to overcome our sin and our struggles and our problems on our own. And it's not that God, in any of the persons of the, of the Godhead, it's not that they don't help or support us if we don't ask for it. Obviously they do. But the idea too behind the word advocate is that we would call upon Him and ask Him for His help and support. And the Bible teaches us in other places that God will run to us because He so wants to help and support us because by His very nature, He is an advocate. He wants to be by the side of His children at all times. And He's always by our side. He's by our side in the best of times and He's by our side in the worst of times. But God is always our advocate and we always have Him as our advocate. 
In fact, John then goes on to say, by the way, this advocate specifically that I'm talking about here with the Father is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Why is John emphasizing the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Because he's saying, think of it. If anybody could have a problem with us because of our sin and would want nothing to do with us and turn their back on us and walk away from us, would it not be the perfect one? Would it not be the righteous one? And yet he's saying, the righteous one, the one who is perfect, the one who is sinless, never turns his back on us, but is always by our side. Then isn't it sad that many times, even amongst Christians, when a Christian is struggling in sin, that instead of being there and standing by their side to try to help and support them, we walk away from them and we abandon them in their hour of greatest need. Now, I'm not saying that as Christians we should condone what they're doing. I'm not saying we should approve of what they're doing. I'm not saying we should applaud what they're doing. But what I am saying is, if Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is always willing to be by my side, even when I'm at my worst, then how can I, a sinful human being, turn my back on another human being when they're maybe struggling in sin? Should I not offer to help and support them rather than turning my back on them? Is that not the essence, if you will, or the spirit of what Paul says? Turn with me to the book of Galatians for just a moment. To Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Is this not what Paul calls us to do as brothers and sisters when he writes in Galatians 6, 1, Brothers and sisters... If a person is discovered in some sin, you who are spiritual, turn your back on them, walk away from them, have nothing to do with them, withdraw from them. No, he says, restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness, paying close attention to yourself so that you are not tempted to. Now, I realize there's also another angle here. And that is, that also means that the person who's struggling in sin and who needs to be restored by some brothers or sisters, wants to be. And is willing to acknowledge that what they're involved in is sin, and that they're over their head, and they need help. Obviously, there are many times where you and I may want to help and support another brother or sister when we know they're struggling with something, but if they're not willing again to walk in the light and to acknowledge it and to confess it and to seek help and support to overcome it, then there's nothing we can do. But we should never just walk away from our brothers and sisters when they're struggling. We should stand in the storms of life with one another and we should pray for one another and we should, we should seek ways to help each other even when we are all at our worst, not just when we're at our best because that's who Jesus Christ is to us. Jesus Christ is not just our advocate when everything's going well for us. Jesus Christ is our advocate 
in the worst of times. And that's the good news and the encouragement that John wants to give to us tonight. In fact, keep your finger there in 1 John. We'll come back. That's why I want to share with you another passage out of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Great passage. You all know it. You're very familiar with it. If God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is our advocate, who's always standing by us, even when we sin, even in our worst moments, this, I think, again, this truth is what motivates Paul to write these words in the book of Romans. If I can just get this page. Here we go. Uh, uh, There we go. All right. Verse 31 of Romans 8. What then shall we say about these things? If God is what? For us. For us. He's our advocate. Who can be against us? That's what John's saying. Jesus Christ is our advocate and He is the righteous one. Indeed, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? Is it God who justifies? Who is the one who will condemn? Christ, the one who died, and more than that, He was raised, who is the right hand of God, and who is also interceding for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we encounter death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But Paul goes on to say, No, in all these things we have complete victory through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen! And then John says in verse 2, and then he says, and this Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he himself is our atoning sacrifice. First of all, the words he himself in the original language means he alone, he only, no one else. It's exactly what Peter was preaching in the book of Acts. When in Acts 4.12 it's recorded that Peter says, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Let me repeat that again. There is salvation in no one else. That's what John's saying. He's saying the only answer to our sin the only one who can, can take the penalty of our sin, the only one who can give us the power to overcome sin is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And John goes on to say, He Himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Now this term, atoning sacrifice, or in some translation, translations, propitiation, is lost, even on most Christians today. Because we have grown up in a, in a culture and society for so many years that is basically biblically illiterate. 
and, and does not grow up understanding God and the ways of God and who God is, understanding atonement and propitiation is like a foreign language. And yet, it is absolutely necessary to understand who God is in His nature and in His essence and in His ways in order to really understand salvation and what we have in God and why all this is necessary in the first place. Because the words atoning sacrifice or propitiation simply mean this. It speaks of the offering alone that satisfies the holiness and justice of God. Let me repeat that. The atonement or atoning sacrifice or propitiation speaks of the offering that alone satisfies the holiness and justice of God. See, if I don't know who God is and who He's revealed Himself to be, then obviously I have a hard time even understanding what's salvation? Salvation from what? Salvation, what are you talking about? Sin. All that. Because part of understanding salvation and all of that is understanding that God is a holy God. And that God is a just God. And though God offers us salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ, being holy and being just in His nature, He cannot simply just say, well, I'm just going to overlook it. God can't do that or else He would cease to be holy and just. Somebody, somebody has to pay for sin. Somebody has to go under judgment for sin. That's the whole backdrop of an atonement, of an atoning sacrifice, of propitiation. It's the understanding that if there's sin, there has to be judgment. There has to be punishment. There has to be a penalty. There has to be consequence. In God's universe that He created, because of the God that He is, a holy, just God, that's the way it's got to be. And so the Bible teaches... That as mankind, we have a choice. We can either reject the offering of salvation through Jesus Christ, and we can say to God, I don't want your salvation. I'll take care of my own sin. And in essence, then, what that does is that means we pay the penalty for our sin, we take the consequences. Yet the beautiful picture for us as believers in Jesus Christ and what the Bible teaches is when you and I understand salvation and what it's all about and why we need to be saved, we understand this. God's a holy, just God. We're sinners. Somebody's got to pay. Somebody's got to go under judgment for that. And that's the beautiful picture of what Jesus did on the cross for us. He who knew no sin, Paul said, became sin for us so that we could be made the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Jesus took our penalty. Jesus took the consequences. He took the punishment. He took the wrath of God on Himself so that you and I would never have to experience it. That's 
what Jesus did. And His sacrifice alone is the only sacrifice that satisfies God's holiness and justice. That's why God teaches us any good works that we try to do to bring to God, the prophet Isaiah says is like filthy rags to God. Because in our self-righteousness, there is nothing that you could and I could ever do, not enough that we could ever do to raise to the level of who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us. And yet, how many human beings have went through this earth from the time God created them who sought to get to God or gain salvation in some way through their own merit rather than realizing that the only sacrifice acceptable to God was Jesus Christ and what He did. But oh my, when you and I realize what Jesus Christ has done for us, does that not give us a renewed appreciation for our Savior and for our salvation? That you and I will never have to experience any penalty and any, any uh, judgment, any punishment, uh, anything for our sin because Jesus Christ took that all on Himself as the one and only atoning sacrifice. And let me say this and I'll move on quickly. This verse and many others like it contradict very clearly the whole concept of penance and purgatory and doctrines like that that man has made up. Either Jesus Christ took it all on Himself and we never have to do anything to pay for our sin or else somehow Christ's sacrifice was not sufficient. It did not satisfy the holiness and justice of God and therefore we have to add to it. And my Bible clearly teaches me, as John says here, that Jesus Christ alone is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In fact, he goes on in verse 2 to say this, that Jesus Christ is so righteous, so pure, so holy, that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, His sacrifice was sufficient that if every human being ever born on earth would have turned to Him as their Savior, that His blood and His sacrificial death was powerful enough to cover every human being's sin that all of us have ever done. It's that sufficient. Now obviously, John's not teaching universal salvation. He's not saying everybody's going to be in heaven and everybody's going to be saved. But what he is teaching is this. He's teaching the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And he is saying to us that Jesus Christ, what he did was good enough that if every human being wanted Jesus, they wanted salvation, they wanted to be saved, his blood was sufficient. And if His blood and His sacrificial death was sufficient to cover all the sins of all mankind of all time, then His blood and His sacrificial death can cover all of our sin. I'll leave you with these verses tonight. Turn to the book of Hebrews. To Hebrews chapter 10. I would encourage you to read the whole chapter at some point. It's a great chapter. But I just want to focus on a couple verses in closing tonight. 
Hebrews chapter 10, look at verse 10 and look at verse 14. The author of Hebrews also makes this very clear about the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. In Hebrews 10.10, the author says, By His will we have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then verse 14. For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are made holy. That's how sufficient Jesus Christ is as our Savior. That's how powerful Jesus Christ and His blood is. He doesn't have to, as the Old Testament priest, offer, as, as the author of Hebrews says, all these sacrifices over and over and over again. And the author says, all those sacrifices pointed to Christ, but none of them could ever take away sin. Only what Jesus Christ did on the cross could take away sin, could forgive sin, could cleanse sin, and could be our atoning sacrifice before God. It is the only sacrifice ever that will totally satisfy the holiness and justice of God. And so John, writing to his dear spiritual children, says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. And He Himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours alone, but for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You for being our advocate willing to stand by us in all things. Jesus even said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus said to His followers, I will be with you even to the end. That's an advocate. One we can always count on. And maybe here tonight, there was a brother or sister in Christ who just needed to be reminded that God is with them at this moment. That He hasn't abandoned them. He hasn't forsaken them. That He is right there with them, ready and able to help and support. But we also know, God, how important it is that as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we again stand with each other in the storms of life and pray for one another. And so tonight as we end, I know we're going a little bit over tonight, and some of you who have to just immediately leave, please feel free to leave. But there may be some of you tonight that just want to stay for a few minutes. And you just want to ask some of your brothers and sisters in Christ to just come around you and pray for you tonight. I'm just going to ask as I close in prayer that immediately after that, if we would just remain quiet for just a moment and allow those folks who would just like to reach out and say, I would like a couple people to come around and pray for me tonight to do so and let those of us know who would like prayer tonight. And then some of us can come around those folks and take the next few moments to pray over them. We're going to do the same thing on Sunday, folks. Because I believe that as a church, as a body of believers, we are under attack right now. We are... We are sailing against the winds. And we can't quit. 
We're moving in the right direction. That's why there's so much spiritual resistance right now. But we also need to pull together and we need to draw near to God. And we need to stand with each other at times like this. And we need to pray for one another. And we need to cling to God and cling to each other. And so we need to really do that. And so God, I'm just praying tonight that you would meet with us. Use your word, God, to strengthen us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would anyone here, like a couple brothers or sisters, to come around and pray for them? Just raise your hand right now. One right there. Anyone else? Just once you see a hand, some of you want to go pray over that. Anyone else? Just raise your hand. All right, over here. There's someone over here. Would some of you go over there and just pray, pray for this gal over here? Anyone else before we dismiss? Hey guys, thank you for being here. God bless you. We'll see you next week.